Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud. And believe it or not, it is coming up to 100 days of the reign of Cyril Ramaphosa. And Ray Hartley, the financial mail cover story which you have written on Cyril's 100 days, what is your assessment, the pluses, the minuses? I think overall, I think it's pretty good. Um, the, the, the various fronts on which he's fighting. I mean, he's, he's got the party that he's got to sort out. He's got an election coming up that he wants to win. He's got to attract investors. And, you know, he's got to, to kind of persuade all of these various constituencies to stay on side. Um, very difficult. So there are moments where I think he's, had, he's made compromises which are questionable, like having Didi Mubuza as deputy president and keeping some of these Zuma uh, failures in the cabinet and so on, um, which probably talks to his weakness within the party. But then there are strengths, and I think the core strength, really, the most important one, is that he's taken charge of the financial ministries with Ntlantlanene, and the state-owned enterprises with Pravin Gordon. And the strategy to me seems to be pretty clear, which is close the taps on the gushing of money into state capture and into corruption. And then, you know, that, that's the first and most urgent priority. And that clearly a lot of progress has already been made by Gordon with, uh, uh, well, with ESCOM, with Donnell, with, with these various boards, Transnet, there's a lot of wading through the, the storm that's going on there. Rob, what would you, it, in some ways you could say, well, actually, what has he done with his 100 days? The, the kind of same old people are largely still there in the cabinet. He only changed a few of the key positions. Um, we haven't seen anyone charged yet. We've got various promises of commissions of inquiry and also promises of invest, 100 billion investment. But is there any tangible anything that you can point to? I do think that there has been, if, if you look a bit broader, you look at when he was elected ANC president in December, uh, Zuma went very quickly, changes did start to happen. We've seen boards, at, as Ray mentioned, at the state of enterprises being fired, um, Transnet, uh, ESCOM's being cleared out, Donnell. And then we have seen changes at um, SA Revenue Service, which is a big one, Tom Moyani basically getting the boots suspended. Um, and just cleared out. And Ramaphosa took a stand um, and said, you have to go, this isn't good enough that we have an institution that is so pivotal to our society, but completely under siege rep reputationally. So he has made some tangible progress. Things like land reform, he hasn't made progress on, and things like jobs. So there's no tangible plans on that. Um, but I do think for our first 100 days, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good start. Lucania, would you have expected him to do more in 100 days? Actually, no. when you list it like that, it sounds pretty good. I was actually just going to say, Hillary, I've only been here for 30 of those 100 days. And in, I mean, so some things you can't measure. You can't measure the change of tone, the change of confidence, so the change of like, sentiment across the country. And, and I'm not just talking only business sentiment, but just like people in the street, like people actually having optimism for the first time in a decade or, or runabouts. I don't think you can actually ever underplay that or, or you can... I should, should I say overplay that? And I also think, yes, I mean, if you look at all the things that Ray and, and them have mentioned, they're, they're quite crucial things. I mean, they might, might be baby steps, but they're quite crucial things. And also remember, he hasn't won an election yet. I mean, there's still an election to go. Maybe like, there'll be more to come once he's actually got his own mandate. So in theory, he still hasn't got a mandate because he hasn't actually gone to the nation and actually won an election. So 
So do you think really there's any risk that he sort of runs out of time that that people get impatient that he isn't acting I think there, enough? I think and there is a big risk. At what point does that trigger? I mean, have we still got quite a lot of yes. time and scope I, I, in hand? I think there is a very big risk because I think that all of these actions have a great effect at the top level of society. Um, but deeper down, you know, if you were unemployed and you were living in a, an informal settlement in December, how has your life changed in these hundred days? Well, you pay more VAT. Other than that, nothing really. Because government is very dysfunctional. The ability to actually turn around the machinery of state and get it to deliver is, is very weak because it has been so stripped of skills and, and there's been so much diversion of resources into corruption that it's very hard to change, to have an impact on ordinary people's lives with government. I think that's Ramaphosa's biggest challenge. So when the election comes, it could be that a lot of people out there are still very jaded and very cynical about uh, politics. Rob, would you call that his biggest challenge, the challenge of rebuilding the state itself? Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of his big challenges, but I do think social legitimacy is another huge issue for him. And the, the real intractable problems are jobs, unemployment. We see this, we see this issue in terms of the, the public sector wage issue, which I'm sure we'll discuss in this program. I mean, you have a giant civil service that, that wants a certain amount of, um, wants a certain degree of, um, of salary, and you've got other competing interests. You've got to keep the budget within a certain level to keep the ratings agencies sweet on you, um, and, and to keep your, your economy, your promises you've made to the wider electorate about fixing the economy on track. Um, and yet, Kasatu is a key is a key member of the ANC alliance. So they have these competing interests, which and that's it's managing that and, and attaining social legitimacy when you've promised land to people, when you've promised um, jobs to people, and, and those are the real problems to to sort out. So fixing SARS is an easy it's an easy thing. Get rid of Samoyani. Dealing with unemployment far less easy. And the land issue. Um, we've just had a weekend of the ANC meeting over land. Its own internal summit on expropriation without compensation. Is the outcome more reassuring, less reassuring than the uh, confusion I suppose we had before? I kind of think um, that, that all they've done is kick the can down the road repeatedly. They haven't dealt with anything. They've made wild promises right, right along the way. And now they say, well, let's see if we can use the constitution, which they could have done years ago. The fact is the ANC hasn't implemented what they could have done years ago. And now we find ourselves with an electorate losing patience um, and them saying, let's do something we could have done years ago and they haven't done it. So I, I just think that that's, it's, that's the real problem for, for Ramaphosa. Look how damaging is this, um, not just the prospect of expropriation without compensation, which as Rob points out, we always had the power mm. to do, but, but the sort of this being a kind of a touchstone that the ANC is kind of making its policy. I think Rob makes a good point. And I think rather than the actual possibility of land being taken away, which is, as I said, they had the ability to do, nothing, nothing stopped in the Constitution. The only thing is, is there's other things that this, this could un un unleash. I mean, obviously, it seems to be some kind of really proxy struggle or proxy war, so to speak, between the different factions within the ANC. But before we even talk about the sort of broader issues about investor confidence and what it means for property rights, but it says a lot of things about the, the, the sort of the fragile nature of the coalition that we have within the ANC at the moment. So a lot of these issues, they're not really fought as policies 
terrain as such that they, they fought more as like sort of like the internal power struggles and hopefully this gets settled in the next few months until we, when we get to the next election we can actually have a government that actually feels it's got a mandate and it can just carry forward. Ray is this is this the issue that really wrong-footed Sir Oran was the land issue and what does that mean for his yeah. grip on the party? You know I think it was a very it was just very um, firstly I, think he, I don't Did think it's a badly? it's a tactical issue I think that Ramaphosa deep, feels deeply about land and you know at, at his birthday party last year well before the ANC election that's what he spoke about at, at some length um, it's not something that he sort of came to suddenly adopt because the EFF was in parliament and he was now president so that that being said I think that politically it is just too tempting for him because it sends a signal to his base that he's with them, cares about them, wants to deliver to them. It knocks the EFF backwards because they can't, you know, you know, what do they stand for? Isn't the ANC doing that now? And the DA is in disarray because the DA now has to stand up and be the party that's against transformation, just like, you know, we always said they were. Because they're the ones saying, no, we don't want the land. Patricia <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just a win on so many fronts in the short, medium term that it's probably too tempting to resist. But the chickens will come home to roost because without the machinery to actually implement this, without the support services for agriculture, without the ability to actually hand land over, without each and every single case being a four or five year set of legal arguments that end up in the constitutional court, um, it's not going to achieve anything. People, it's going to really make people cynical. Well, in fact, that's that's what, what it's it's sort of there in the in the in the in the story that line that came out of the the weekend summit. But you don't you don't haven't really seen uh, the ANC or or Sora saying. We've got a real problem because we made a mess of it in the last 10, 20 years that we've been doing it. I, I do we, think yeah, that, that, you know, there was the statement by David Makura and the, uh, Gauteng is now going to offer these service sites, build your own house. They're going to identify this land. I think that's where it's going to get channeled to. Stuff that the state can potentially do quickly is take state land on the periphery of urban areas and hand over title to people on quite a large scale. Um, in, and 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 you know the, your, your site service uh, build your own house program. I think is going to become the proxy for the land discussion later on. Look, can you? Yeah. Uh, it, it may be a, a, it's a sort of proxy war within the party. But I mean, what is 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 this affecting investor sentiment? I wouldn't think so. I mean, no, no, not by judging, just by by normal assets like the rent or bond markets. I mean, those tend to be driven more by what happens internationally, really. I mean, I mean, the rand has gone from being very weak a couple of weeks ago to being very strong in the last couple of days. And it's already been about what's happening internationally, what's happening with the U.S. markets. I mean, in the periphery, yes, people will talk about internal politics. But for a currency like ours, which is a very small economy but very liquid, it's very, it's very rare really for, people, for local issues to be the main driver. Though, though the one issue which, which investors did seem to be watching was the public sector pay deal. Mm. And Rob, is the outcome, as far as we know so far, is it, uh, is it something which is going to be market friendly? Is it something which is going to rein in the sort of runaway spending on, 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 on public sector pay that has sort of tended to sink the 
Mm. Um, the, the deals the, with the, the agencies. The budget, the, the rating agencies, but also the, 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 the mm. government's ability to do a whole lot of other things. Well, I mean, you, you've written a lot about this. I, I think mm. that it's, it's going to, it has breached certain levels. I mean, it's going to breach that. What they've said is the 7% or whatever it is, but it hasn't included all the contingent benefits which are going to increase as well. Um, so it is going to breach certain levels. It's going to make it a lot tougher for them to stick within their, their agreements. What they have to do is reduce the size of the civil service. I think they're freezing posts so that if people leave, ultimately you might be giving the people who remain uh, you know, an effective, say, 7.6 or 7.7 .7 with you know, all the other benefits clocked up. But ultimately, if you reduce headcount, then, then it might work out to something that is manageable. Um, I think it was always going to be a tough task to keep it under, under sort of 8%. Uh, so to some extent, it's not the worst possible deal, but it, it has breached the, the, the limits. I mean, that's fundamentally the bottom line, um, but it, it could have been worse. Ray, very quickly, is, before we take a break, is, is this another proxy in a way for, for the, the kind of battle within? Well, you know, I mean, investors, I think, are looking at the public sector wage deal to see, you know, Ramaphosa's base in the ANC is in the left, it's, he's, the unions are his backers. Does he stand up to them? Does he actually, is he prepared to be unpopular with them? And can he afford to be unpopular with them is the bigger question because then you have them and the Zuma faction and, and, and within the party against him. It's a very tricky one. And we're going to take a quick break before we come back and talk to you again. Welcome back. And uh, Rob Rose, your story on the CEO of Signia taking on the JSE on Friday. Tell us about that. Yeah, Magda, I went to the JSE AGM, which was, which was fascinating because Magda, I mean, I suppose the backdrop is that Magda had wanted to list a cri cryptocurrency. We phone. should give her surname if you're willing to try and pronounce Wizika, it. Wizika. Very <laughs> Polish. I can try. Wizika. Um, and yeah, so, so she had, you know, the backdrop is that she'd wanted to list this fund. The JSE had refused ostensibly because... Um, they wanted to protect investors, or refused. I mean, officially, the word from the JSE is that its discussions are still continuing. But Magda this was a cryptocurrency yes, fund. Cryptocurrency yes. fund, a Bitcoin ETF. Um, but I think the fundamental point is that you know the JSE has listed some terrible companies in the last couple of years. So who are they to suddenly claim that they're looking after investors when they've listed Oak Bay? When the when the listing price of the Oak Bay Resources, which was the Gupta-owned company was manipulated um, to, to, to achieve that listing price. Then there were a couple of companies, Sagamata and AO, that were um, making big losses beforehand and essentially insolvent and with, with um, rather woolly uh, business plans. And so her, her point was that you were doing all this, all this stuff to protect investors ostensibly when it comes to my Bitcoin fund, uh, but yet not when it comes to the other issues. And I suppose it goes, it goes down to to what extent does the JSE have a greater responsibility to look after investors in an environment where technology means that a lot of investors on the market are buying ETFs, they're passive investors, they don't really know what is in the individual companies. So is there a heightened responsibility on regulators, and I suppose the JSE is a regulator to some extent, to, to pay greater heed to what actually is being listed? Or is it just a case of caveat emptor? You know, you know the, the, the buyer of the, of the stock is supposed to look after it. So it's, a, it's an intriguing debate. Yeah, Lucania, in fact, in fact, the JSE is a regulator and it's, it's sort of both an exchange and a police mm. person of the, of the, the listings on its own exchange. But it, the, the, the Business Day leader um, raised some of the issues around that, that technically the JSE is, is supposed to follow its own rules in listing a company. And if they comply, who is it to say, well, this is 
a really crap company. I mean, listen to what Rob is saying. Maybe, maybe it does raise questions whether I should play both those roles. Maybe like some, can it actually be a, a, a proper judge and jury in terms of, 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 of these two different functions? That, that, that maybe, maybe an argument can be made that, that you need a totally different institution to actually look at. But you don't think some. that, I don't think you need, you can't have a subjective rule that says I just don't like you. Like you say, you have to have rules and if you meet the rules, they have to list you. You can't just say I don't like Iqbal survey or I don't like the Guptas or I don't like AO and therefore I won't list you. You have to say if you meet these rules, it's not up to us to decide if your company is a good company or not. Yeah. That has to be the fun fundamental overriding principle, right? Yeah, it should be. But then if, in this case, maybe we're talking about the weakness of the rules themselves. Because mm -hmm. obviously maybe the, maybe the rules are inadequate. How does I mean, it work on other exchanges? It's the same thing. Yeah, in fact, so in fact, as it turned out in the Standoff thing, there were exchanges such as I think I think it was Frankfurt, which mm. actually had weaker rules. Was mm. Amsterdam, which had weaker rules than than, than we mm. had in yeah, some we'll cases. Yeah, forget the Standoff thing. Um, actually, so originates from Europe, not from yeah. here. Yeah, no, no. We, we always mm. hear about the JSC being sort of world class and in line with world standards. And I wonder, is there space to impose additional rules, or is it just? A question of exercising for of investors exercising a lot more oversight and Lucania, that's mm. also come up uh, this week in Business Day with Coronation saying mm. uh, we need to learn to be more skeptical. I think like uh, from Professor, she did make a good point that when investors have the right information, they still be allowed to make their own decisions. And to also to move to this Coronation story, I mean this is really fascinating in, in a lot of ways because it, it talks a lot of points. One point is, is we're talking about sort of this complacency or lack of skepticism in the sort of corporate sector that sort of allowed a lot of wrongdoing to actually happen, which, which actually they admit themselves that maybe they should have been a bit more skeptical in some things. I mean, you can argue, I mean, there is this asymmetry of information in this kind of things. So there must be some element of trust, like you know, the whole system does not work if there's no trust. So you can't just blame all the investors and say they should have known this where they don't have the inside information. But also it talks to me about the cost of these things, because like, now here we, they talk about having lost 14 billion. I mean, like, I think most people would think that 14 million has been lost by a company, but this is a fund manager that actually manages money on behalf of people like our viewers out there and our pensioners across the country. So it actually also talks to the, to the actual cost and, and, and the real cost to real people. And I think that's why, that's why this story is so important and that's why it shouldn't be allowed to die off really. Yes, yeah, and, and, and the, we, 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 we highlighted the losses at the PRC, which is managing the pension funds of those very public sector workers mm. we were just talking about, um, which were absolutely giant. But uh, as we go through um, the various big fund managers announcing their results, we're going to find out what toll the standoff debacle has taken. Mm. And in fact, not just Steinhoff, you know, the sort of corporate failures have taken mm -hmm. at, at other fund managers. And Rob, we still don't, we, it's, it's now almost six months on, we still have no idea what mm. happened at Steinhoff. Yeah, well, we have. Or do we have some idea? Because there's the PwC investigation. Because he's writing a book about it. Hopefully it'll be as good as Ray's. Are you writing a book <laughs> about Steinhoff? Yeah, ostensibly. Oh, wow. But I mean, the thing is that there is a sense of what happened. They know that there were these off-balance sheet companies in Europe and they did all these dodgy deals. They tried to, they inflated the value of all the intangible goodwill, tangible assets and goodwill on the balance sheet. So they did all these kind of shenanigans in Europe that that's made things look better than they were fundamentally. So there's a sense of that. They just don't know quite how bad it was. They already said last week that they're going to make a loss for this current period because they're going to write down a whole of those weird um, financial, financial shenanigans on the balance sheet, write it off. So it's gonna make a loss for the six months to March. Um, but the, there's a PwC investigation, there's 60 people 
forensic investigators working on Steinhoff until the end of the year from PwC. So it's not a small amount of unraveling of fraud there. Um, yeah. But you know the, the point about about that. I do think fund managers have learned a lot from from Steinhoff, and I think that if you look at so the votes against remuneration from companies, which is just one, one barometer. Mm -hmm. But I think it's Alan Gray that has voted against 42% of remuneration policies in the last, in the last year or so, which, or 30%, but it's, it's illustrating a greater degree of skepticism than they used to illustrate. Normally you had most resolutions at AGMs passed by 99%. Companies are now looking at them individually and saying, perhaps this director shouldn't be appointed, perhaps they're doing too much, perhaps remuneration isn't in line with what they're producing for shareholders. So I think that it has been a greater sense of accountability than they used to be. And perhaps KPMG and Steinhoff are, are partly the cause of that. Isn't it, is, isn't it in a sense not just the Steinhoff uh, failure, but all, some of these other corporate scandals, failures and so on, have, have, have raised the question for investors and in fact for regulators, because I remember Nikki Newton kidding at the JC saying this as well, that, that there are new metrics that you need to look at. Yeah. Um, which are more intangible than the ones we used to look at. Like, you know, we need to look out for the very dominant chief exec calling all the shots. We, we need to trust our instincts in a way about what doesn't feel right or what doesn't look right. And would that be one of the learnings, do you think, uh, Ray, that, 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 that well, um, investors and, in fact, stakeholders generally could have taken from absolutely. these various scandals, I failures think so. I and mean, reputational collapses? I mean, I personally think it would be a mistake to take all the risk out of the system because then there would be no, a whole lot of ventures which just does not happen that might turn out to be very successful. Mm. Um, you know, you'd, you'd cut a whole lot of people off from the, from the markets and from access to capital that, and amongst them might be the next discovery and, and so on. So we'll be a bit careful of that. But it was quite interesting in the business day this week, there's now an outfit that offers insurance uh, for management fraud, essentially, or, man or mismanagement and fraud, and you know, mm. so if you if you buy shares in a company and it turns out that you know, the wool was pulled over your eyes, you can actually. I'd claim. love to be the actuary who's sitting down and <laughs> assessing, <laughs> the, quantifying that yeah. risk. But yeah. I mean, Christo Visa at, at Steinhoff, uh, you know, being <laughs> claiming to be the innocent victim, and either he was a complete fool or he's he's a knave. Um, <laughs> back, and he's leaving a long career really looking humiliated, I think, one way or the other. By contrast, Stephen Kossif, Rob, has uh, retired now from Investec, looking as Stephen Kossifish as ever. And uh, um, what is his legacy? It was interesting he because... Built, he, built, he and two friends built this thing absolutely from yeah, scratch. Exactly. To it's kind of like often, business. I think often a CEO leaves and you don't really notice until a few years later just what impact they had when things start to unravel. Then you go, oh, that guy was pretty good actually. But in this case, people know exactly what they're losing with Kossoff. At, at the results presentation last week, everyone stood up, applauded. You know, there were people crying. His wife was there. His son was there. It was... It was you know, people know what Kossoff brings. He's a guy who, when I've met him and spoken to him, he knows what happens in all the credit committee meetings. Not just, you know, a lot of other CEOs, they have a, have a sense of what's going on in the company, but Co Stephen Kossoff knows what happens in that credit meeting. He knows what this client, what this client is borrowing from the bank and on what terms. He's that kind of guy, and that's, that's he has a kind of a feel for banking the people who know him, which is not something you, you teach in an MBA class. Um, and I think that, you know, Investec has done some terrible deals. They bought a subprime lender just before the subprime bubble burst. But, you know, they all made Investec what it is, and it's, it's, he's built a business worth $100 billion, um, in, in 30 years from nothing. 
It is a remarkable story. And, and Luke, how does it look you, when you were based in the UK? I mean, how did Investec look from that side? I mean, I mean, they are out in the UK, very small. And I think when I left, they had the, the asset management side of the business. I think it was 160 billion pounds under. I mean, it doesn't look, it doesn't sound big actually by UK, European standards, but, but, but convert that into rents and, and considering where they started. I mean, that is actually quite impressive. I suppose the question for the company, like, I mean, you, you mentioned just now the personalities. I mean, okay, when a company has been so tied to a personality for so long, it sort of makes you wonder what, what the future will look like. And I suppose we want, I, I think that's probably common to any sort of like sort of founder companies where like they become so tight and so connected to the actual individuals who own and build them. So the question is like, what legacy, what legacy is, but also what, how the company will evolve from here without that personality, without that sort of like person who says, as Rob says, who looks through everything and everything, who dominates everything. How deep does the culture go of an organization and how dependent is it on the chief executive? Do you think that applies in politics as much as it does in business? Not enough. Well, you know, how, how deep did that Zuma culture go? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think it does. But in, in, in the sort of inverse of the COSA, for example, you have Zuma leaving the stage, but this very deeply embedded also had culture. also applauding when he left. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But, but there's, a, there's a culture that actually sunk down to the capillaries in this, in, inside the ANC. It's very hard to pull it out without killing the organism. And before we get depressed again, I have to ask you guys, and you'll laugh, did you watch the royal wedding? Luke, did you watch the royal wedding at the weekend? I didn't, but I heard that my daughter had. And I, I'm sure she'll learn, so I'll still make a Republican of her. She's, she's still only about seven years old, so I'll forgive her for now. That's the kind of <laughs> the lefty antagonism to the royal family kind of never you goes away. You surely did. No, Ray, I, you didn't I, watch I, the royal I, wedding. I was at Franschhoek doing a book uh, session, so unfortunately I missed it. Oh, but I did yeah. watch on YouTube the choir. That saying, stand, stand by, by me, by me. Yeah. the most magnificent thing. Highly recommend it. I was actually <laughs> astonished at the extent to which, well, the Americans took it up. Um, I wonder if it wasn't more watched in the States than ever any royal event ever. But also here, a lot of people followed this wedding and a lot of black people. And in a sense, the sort of rebranding of the royal family because um, it's really just a giant marketing exercise for, for I mean, Britain uh, Incorporated. I think you I like. had some on the radio like about a billion people watched that song. Mm -hmm. That's well, part of it at some point. I mean, my, my house, my mother had a lot of those tacky plates with Charles and Diana from the 80s. It was despicable. I think we should oh burn them goodness. all. So you didn't watch? No, I watched bits of it, unfortunately, when I, when I wandered through and had no have to make sarcastic remarks. I then went to the gym and I, and I saw Justice Malala, who came in, uh, who writes for these publications, who was furious that his wife was watching the royal wedding. There's a land summit going on. Most important thing, we're watching a royal wedding. <laughs> Such <laughs> earnestness. <laughs> we'll see you again knows. next week. Um, <laughs> join us again in a week's time for another edition of Editing Aloud.